Good morning and welcome to Mountain Radio Astronomy. I'm Sue Ann Heatherly. I'll be your host this morning again as usual. I hope you enjoyed that little bit of intro music. The name of that song is Green Bank Reverie and it was written by a fellow named David Fleming. David Fleming is a West Virginia native, originally from the Athens, Princeton area of West Virginia. He was a professor of computer science at Concord College for a while and then he came up here to Green Bank to work for the observatory. Now he works in Chicago on a telescope that is under development right now. Sometime when he's back for a vacation, uh, we'll talk to him about his telescope project and what he's working on. But in the meantime, I hope you enjoyed the intro music and you'll hear it at the beginning of future Mountain Radio Astronomies in the months to come. Uh, our guest today on Mountain Radio Astronomy is Dr. Bruce Campbell, who is a scientist at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. National Air and Space Museum. Isn't that cool? And um, Dr. Bruce does uh, an interesting kind of experiment when he comes here to the NRAO. He does radar. We're going to talk to him about the work he's been doing. Uh, every time I walk into the GBT control room, the first thing I look at are two very beautiful images that are posted on the wall there. And those are images that Bruce has created along with his collaborators. So tell the folks, first of all, um, what you're studying. Okay. Well, what we're doing in each of these experiments is we're transmitting from the radio transmitters at the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico and we bounce those off the moon and then we use the Green Bank Telescope as a receiver uh, mostly because the Green Bank Telescope has a different type of receiver on it than Arecibo does so we're able to measure different properties of the reflected signal than we would be able to do if we just picked up the echoes in Puerto Rico. Uh, what we do from those echoes is to actually make a map of the surface of the moon uh, that looks like a photograph uh, but it's actually a photograph made in one of two radio wavelengths. One is at 12 centimeters, the other is at 70 centimeter wavelength. And the reason we use those two wavelengths is to get different sensitivity to different depths within the mixed up dust and rock that makes up the surface of the moon. Okay, so folks out there, I am sure uh, many of the folks listening today have uh, been pulled over by a policeman at some point in time and been told that they were speeding and uh, police officers use radar to figure that out. How does that work exactly? And is that similar to what you're doing? It's pretty similar in one sense to what we're doing. We make a map of the moon uh, not by taking a photograph in sort of horizontal and vertical dimensions, but instead we measure how long it takes the echo to get from Arecibo to the moon to Green Bank, and we measure that very precisely. And then we also at the same time measure the Doppler shift, how the frequency changes at each point on the moon that's in that reflected signal. And so by splitting up the echo by how much time delay it takes and how much frequency shifting there is, we can make a picture where the officer who stops you for speeding mainly just wants to know how fast you were going, so he might measure just your Doppler shift. Now let's talk just a little bit about that to give people some perspective. There's a, a policeman sitting on the side of the road. He's got a portable transmitter with mm -hmm. him that transmits radio waves. Yes and um, he transmits radio waves at you in your car as you are speeding down the road uh, toward him, let's say. So what happens to those radio signals that the policeman uh, transmits to you in your car? Okay. Let's those, talk about what the Doppler shift is a little bit. Okay. Those uh, signals go out from his uh, radar gun, 
and they have a certain frequency to them. And when they hit your car, your car is moving towards him at some speed. And so when the, the radio wave gets reflected back to him, it changes its frequency because it's hit, run into something basically that's moving toward him. And so it picks up that, that difference in speed, if you want, and converts it uh, to a change in frequency. And so he can measure that frequency change from what he transmitted and know how fast you were going. And that change in frequency is called the Doppler shift. It, it, it measures a higher frequency if you're coming toward the officer. If he happened to turn around and clock you while you were going away from him, he would see a lower frequency. Okay, so there's a great big dish down in Puerto Rico. It's a thousand feet across. It's called the Arecibo Telescope. Mm -hmm. And this telescope is not only a radio telescope, but it can be a powerful radar transmitter too. That's correct. It, it transmits about two million watts of power. Wow. Two million watts of power. So you don't want to get in that in the path of that, I no. guess. You don't want to get cooked um, by that. And so you turn on the radar at Arecibo, or somebody does this for you, and it sends out a radio signal at a particular frequency all the way out into space to the moon. That's right. All right. So what happens next? The radio waves hit the moon. Right. So two and a half seconds after every... We, we send out a pulse from Arecibo, and two and a half seconds later, it shows up here at Green Bank. And that pulse, just like the radar signal from the officer's radar gun, has a certain frequency to it. By the time it's hit the moon, if you think about looking at the moon as sort of this spinning basketball in the sky, one side of the basketball is coming toward you, one side of the basketball is moving away from you. And what we do is we separate out the frequencies that came from the side of the basketball moving toward us and the part from the basketball moving away. And so that gives us one of our coordinates to make a picture. And then we also measure how, uh, how much time it takes for every signal. And if, again, you think about that basketball, there's a spot on the ball that's closest to you. So the signal's going to come back from that first. And then almost like ripples on a pond out away from that point, those signals will come from pr progressively longer times until you finally get to the edge of the ball. So we can use those two properties of the echo, its frequency and the time delay, to separate out the signal that comes back and make a picture. What are you trying to learn about the moon from doing this experiment? A couple of different things. One is just the basic geologic history of the moon. There are still questions about how the moon developed over time, even after six Apollo landings. We only went to six places. And if you think about the moon having a land area about the size of Africa, imagine just getting six places in Africa and feeling like you knew everything about it. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of area on the moon we just don't understand. So one thing we want to do is use the radar signals to look below the ground. That, that's our biggest asset is that uh, these radio waves can go anywhere from a few feet to perhaps even 100 feet into the ground uh, because the moon is so dry. And so we're able to measure the properties of the surface in a way that other sensors can't. What are you learning? Well, we've The done... moon, is it, is it made of green cheese? Have you learned that? No, no, <laughs> it's made of, made of uh, good old rock, uh, no water. Uh, but it has some very interesting history to it. It went through a very violent phase of being bombarded by large objects, as did the Earth. But on the Earth, the record of all of that uh, time back to a, from about the formation of the planet to about three and a half billion years ago, that record is almost completely gone on the Earth. On the Moon, it's largely preserved. So we're able to look back in time at what the solar system was going through uh, when we look down into the layers of the Moon's surface. And one of the things we're finding is that uh, volcanic activity was going on while that 
intense bombardment was happening, we're able to see lava flows that were pouring out onto the moon's surface while these giant basins were being formed and burying those lava flows with their the piles of material that were thrown out. So we can actually trace out the lava flows that were underneath, uh, that are now underneath those uh, basin deposits. If the moon were to suddenly be hit by a big object now, a big comet or a big asteroid or something, mm -hmm. Would that cause lava flows today? What's the moon like today compared to how it was three billion years ago? The moon today is, is pretty much geologically dead. Uh, the moon is so small relative to the Earth that all of the heat that was inside of it has largely been lost. There is still a warm, it's still warm at the bottom, but the upper layers of the rock that make up the moon have cooled off and become solid so thick, in such a thick layer that uh, lava can't come up anymore. Mm -hmm. Where on the Earth, there is still enough heat below the surface to allow that to happen. And you said that the moon's geologic history is largely preserved since its formation, and yet the Earth's is not. I think I know the answer to that question, but tell us anyway. As to why it is? As to why that is, yeah. Uh, the Earth being larger has a lot more heat to get rid of, and so it's had a very active geologic history especially through plate tectonics, having the ocean floors open and close over time. Uh, and then at the surface of the continents, it's wind, water, all the different erosional factors that wear down the mountains, would wear away large impact craters. Uh, there are still some large impact craters left on the Earth, and even some small ones. Uh, if you go out to Arizona, there's Meteor Crater. Uh, but on the moon, things like Meteor Crater are shoulder to shoulder. You pretty much walk out of one crater and into another if you're on the old parts of the moon. Right. So you can, I, do scientists uh, try to figure out which impacts happened when, or can you figure out sort of a, a history of, of a bombardment history for the moon by looking at the... that That's a very important topic right now because, yeah, the answer is that, yes, people would very much like to know the bombardment history of the moon because if you understand that, you understand the bombardment history of other objects in the solar system. Uh, and there is a lot of work still being done using the Apollo samples to try to understand uh, what kind of record we have of little pieces of material thrown out by impacts and uh, to try and get at that bombardment history in more detail. Because we certainly, um, we certainly wouldn't want to go through a, a big epic of bombardment. <laughs> well, there won't be another one no, quite that large. Uh, all those objects have gone away. Uh, but certainly the moon is also a good guide to how much material is still drifting around the inner solar system. So there's an interest in that. And of course, there's an interest uh, at the poles of the moon as to whether they contain water ice. Yeah. And so, uh, and that, that water ice, if it's in large amounts, would have to come largely from comets. And we know that comets bring water to Mercury, or at least we, we believe we know that, uh, based on radar evidence. So let's talk about that a little bit. Sure. Um, there are other radar experiments that have been done on solar system bodies, I guess if they're close enough, or, and Mercury is one of them. And so if you, if you hit Mercury with, uh, a radar signal and look at the return signal, you say you've, you've seen some evidence for water, ice. That's right. In, in particular... On uh, this closest planet to the To, to the, the sun. sun. That's yeah. right. Uh, scientists down uh, at the Arecibo Observatory have been active in doing that uh, type of work. And what they've found is that in areas near the poles, because Mercury spins very nicely straight up and down with respect to how it goes around the sun, 
essentially, if you poke a hole like a crater near the poles, there are areas that are in shadow all the time. That even though Mercury is very close to the sun, you'd think it would be baked hot all the time. There are places that haven't seen the sun in three to four billion years. And it's still cold down in the bottom of these craters. It's very, very cold, yeah, hundreds of degrees below zero. And it hasn't changed in literally billions of years. And so what can happen is that when a comet comes and hits the surface of Mercury, all of that water and hydrogen and everything else that's in a comet, methane, whatever else is there, turns into a very brief atmosphere for the planet. And any part of that atmosphere that gets into that permanently shadowed area will condense out. And you can end up with anything from thin layers of frost, in a sense, to thick sheets of ice. And what the observers at Arecibo have found is that it appears that almost every permanently shadowed crater near the poles of Mercury has what appear to be meter thick or greater sheets of ice. What does ice look like if you shine a, a radar, radio waves at it and those, those signals come back? How do you, what's the evidence that that's ice? They have very, very bright reflections. The same way a highway sign seems to light up when, you're, when your headlights hit it. That's the same kind of behavior you get when you shine a radar beam at ice. Okay, so it's shiny. That's right. All right. So you've been trying to take a look at the moon to see if you see some similar? That's correct. And where are you looking? Are there places in permanent shadow on the moon? There are places in permanent shadow on the moon. The the moon is not quite as favorable for that as Mercury. It it has a little bit more of a wobble to its orbit, so, so there aren't quite as many places. But we've been looking at the places we can see from the Earth, which is maybe about a quarter of the total amount of shadowed area near both the North and South Poles, And what we've seen so far is that we don't see mercury-like deposits. Uh, We don't seem to find these very thick sheets of ice filling in crater floors. Now, there have been measurements of hydrogen that were made by orbiting spacecraft around the moon, and there are suggestions that there is some amount of hydrogen that's trapped in those permanently shadowed areas. That hydrogen, though, may be at just sort of the 1% or 2% level and may, in fact, be little grains of water ice or something like that but we just don't see the sort of 100% water ice thick layers that are out there uh, that we think are there on Mercury. How can you see into these permanently shadowed craters? I mean, When the sun doesn't. Yeah. Yeah, Uh, the basic reason for that is we have our own flashlight. We use the Arecibo transmitter as a giant flashlight to light up those places. And because the moon and the earth go through a sort of orbital dance as the year goes on, you can occasionally see farther over the horizon at the moon's poles than the sun does. So we can see seven or eight degrees over the horizon where the sun might see two degrees. So we have a chance to look into a portion of those shadowed areas. From a a perspective of the the general public and our, our space program, why is this an important experiment to do? Well, it's important because there is a a national goal to go back to the moon uh, within the next couple of decades, and certainly that's that's a worthwhile thing to do. The moon offers a lot of prospects in terms of learning to explore a planetary surface, develop the kind of techniques that you would use eventually to go to Mars, which is sort of the ultimate goal of, of the planetary program on the human side. And in that sense, you want to understand where on the moon you might go to have either scientifically valuable or, if you want to call it, economically useful things. Maybe not economical for Earth use, but economical for use on the moon. 
And so there are a couple of different kinds of things on the moon that you want to go after. There are various kinds of minerals, things that contain iron and uh, titanium in particular, that we can find on some of these old lava flows. There are also places where there are volcanic ash deposits uh, that we're also looking at with the radar system. And those volcanic ash deposits may contain significant amounts of trapped gases that we'd like to get at. And then finally, there's the polar deposits. We know there's hydrogen there, but we'd like to understand more about is it in the form of ice? Is it concentrated? Uh, all of these questions eventually guiding where humans go and where the robots go in advance of them. Right. I mean, if you're going to go to the moon, you need as much advanced knowledge as possible, I guess. And you can't be sending a, you know, a shuttle bus back and forth between the Earth and the moon. Uh, That's right. And you want to have uh, enough lead time that you understand the kinds of resources that you might want to exploit. It's, it's going to be a very different kind of uh, mission if one went to the poles as opposed to going to a pyroclastic volcanic ash deposit or to mine the, the, the dusty covering of a lava flow. So those are the kinds of questions we're looking at is where are the best resources, where are the best places to do more exploration with robots and then eventually pick the best places to send humans. Do you know, what do you know about the timeline for going back to the moon? I, I'm not very up on on it. I just know that the president made an announcement a couple I, of years ago. Or? I, I believe at the time he was targeting 2018 for human return to the moon. So a very ambitious time scale and uh, a lot of work to do in advance of that to understand these kinds of issues. And there are a series of, of missions planned, robotic missions, uh, starting in late 08 that will begin to answer some of the questions in greater detail. Cool. Tell me just a, a little bit about um, these gorgeous pictures that are on the wall of the Green Bank Telescope Control Room. They, they absolutely look like photographs. You can see craters. You can see lumpiness um, there. Are these images from below the surface? Part of that signal is coming from the surface. Part of it is coming from below the surface. So you do see hills, you see valleys, you see shadows. So your eye interprets it as a picture. Most of what you're seeing are changes in slope. So if something faces you, it looks brighter, just like a, a mirror looks brighter if you, if you tilt it toward you or toward, toward a light that you're holding. Uh, and then the other part of the signal is coming from uh, having the radar bounce around rocks. Uh, because the radar uses wavelengths that are in the neighborhood of 10 to 70 centimeters, they're sensitive to rocks that are on about that same size range. So in a sense, anything that's brighter has more rocks at the surface or below the surface than someplace that's dark. And so you tend to pick out features like impact craters very well because they have a lot of rocks strewn all around them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's the, um, if let's say we, we put the Green Bank Telescope on the moon and you've shown a radar at it, would you be able to see it? Oh yeah, you know, you'd extremely bright reflection from the telescope simply because it's such a good reflector. And it's metal, right? right? And in fact, uh, when the Apollo astronauts were there, they left behind some relatively small, just sort of a few feet across, uh, retroreflectors that are used for uh, laser ranging to the moon still, where you can shine a laser, hit those targets, get a signal back, and actually measure very carefully uh, how far away the moon is. And by measuring several points, you can tell whether the moon's spin is changing and how quickly. That's pretty cool. They yeah, left pre something pretty, pretty useful behind, didn't they? Yeah, they left a number of experiments that worked for yeah. a number of years. 
Well, what about the other stuff the astronauts left there? Do you think you'd be able to see that with your radar experiment? We're hoping our, our best resolution right now is about 20 meters per pixel. So we can't make a picture that would show you, say, the lunar module uh, descent stage, which is left behind at the landing sites. But we might get a reflection off of it. So we, we think that we might at least see a very bright signal over that larger area. But we won't be able to make a picture that, that really looks like well, that's anything still left pretty behind. Cool. Yeah, be neat to see that's it. That's still pretty cool, and that will help us uh, defend ourselves against Fox News that that we actually went to the moon back in the 60s. Yes. We'll be able to say, look, there's something really shiny there that the moon doesn't make on its own. That's true. Well, I think that's a fascinating experiment that you all do, and I, the images are just absolutely gorgeous. And we do have one image from an early experiment that you did a couple of years ago, I think, when you first started doing this, of the moon on our website. So thank you very much for being with us. Well, thank you. I appreciate and, the time. Um, let us know what happens with your latest experiments there. If you find water, we want to know. Will do. That wraps up this edition of Mountain Radio Astronomy. As I sign off, I'll leave you with a few more seconds from David Fleming's song, Green Bank Reverie. I'll see you next month for Mountain Radio Astronomy. This is Sue Ann Heatherly.